Hello, welcome to You Don't Know Mojack. My name is Ryan. My name's Brent. And this episode, we're discussing SST 202, the Brian Ritchie Sonic Temple and Court of Babylon LP. We've had a few Brian Ritchie releases on the show before, and we actually had Brian on the show for episode 141, his The Blend LP. But on this episode, to help us get into this record, we've got another special guest. You bet. We've got Peter Balistreri on the show. Yeah, and what an interview. Great info, great stories, and probably one of my favorite stories out of any of our guests. I already know all, I already know which one you're yeah, referencing. Yeah. Of all of all time. It just uh it made my hair stand up when I heard it. Just yeah. awesome. So super pumped to get into this record. I I think we mentioned this last time, you know, you are more of a violent femmes fan and I think you've got a bit more of a soft spot for the Brian Ritchie solo stuff than I do, but there's some uh, catchy tracks on this record. So looking forward to it. Yep. Why don't you hit us with some spiels? Okay. I have a bit of an update on last week's Ultra Mega OK episode. So Kim mentioned something about the Dos Domin dudes reviewing them. Yeah, yeah. And that, and you know. Like in the New York Rocker or something like uh, that, right? CMJ, yeah. Oh, CMJ, right. And then like that review came to SST's attention. So I hit up Alex Totino and here's what he told me. Oh, sweet. Lyle and I did work at CMJ for a little while. He's a better typist and scribe, so he did quite a few reviews. I did all sorts of stuff, and any writing was me ghostwriting. We received the Soundgarden Screaming Life EP on orange vinyl, no less. I took the first listen with headphones, jumped up, and said, Eureka! I, <laughs> I told Lyle and the dudes to hold the press. We were thrilled. Our hair suit brethren in Seattle got it. Punk dudes that were shredding their skin and embracing Sabbath, killing joke, butthole surfers, etc. So I ghost wrote that review. I would have paid them to let me review records like that. And you bet we championed their cause to all our buddies at on SST, Discord, Touch and Go, etc. Me, up to a point, and Lyle definitely could spot a winner from a mile away. And Soundgarden were no exception. Suffice to say, Chris was a good dude, and Kim is brilliant with that guild. Yeah, no doubt. How's Alex doing? He's doing great. Oh, awesome. Yep. Any updates on some new Das Damen music? Didn't ask. Oh, dude ask okay. next time next yep. time anyways i will well we've got some domin coming up yeah yeah ryan 10 minute warning yeah yeah so the semi-legendary seattle band probably most well known for the fact that duff mckagan was a member pre-gnr they are often credited for paving the way for the bands later on that mixed punk and metal like green river they grew out of the band The Farts and The Living. Uh, famously, they made several attempts at recording an album. At one point, they were slated to release one, uh, their debut on Alternative Tentacles, but the band fell apart in 1984. Uh, years later, when Duff left Guns, like in 1987, they reunited and released an excellent self-titled album on Sub Pop. They brought in a new vocalist for that one, Christopher Blue, uh, original vocalist Steve Verwolf was serving time in federal prison, I believe, for drug-related charges. He passed away in 2008 from a heroin overdose, unfortunately. There's a lot more to the history than what I'm getting into here. I, I, I've talked about them before. Yeah, yeah. Lots of tentacles to other bands. Uh, but here's what I wanted to mention. 
Between March and September of 1984, they recorded an album's worth of material with Daniel House uh, on bass, replacing uh, Duff, who had just departed. And then during the 2020 lockdowns, they dug out the tapes, Mm -hmm. and who other than Jack and Dino remixed and remastered them? Yep. This could be heaven, the lost 1984 recordings. Limited pressing on vinyl or on their Bandcamp page. Anybody out there who hasn't heard this, you totally need to. Um, all of the influences, you know, Kim was talking about last week, for sure. Bauhaus, uh, the Velvets, it's psychedelic for sure. There's a song on here called Echoes that could totally be a swa song. Steve Verwolf, uh, who's the vocalist on this one, does a great Iggy, and from all accounts pulled it off too with his stage presence. Uh when they opened for Flag in 1983, Rollins apparently referred to them as the punk rock Hawkwind. <laughs> this album is a is a real gem. I found a cool spin article from November of last year when this came out, written by Daniel House, mm-hmm. where he calls the band Grunge's Missing Link, and it's tough mm-hmm. to argue with that. There's some uh, cool Charles Peterson photos in that in that piece as well. You're saying, mm-hmm, like you know all of this, Ryan. Did you pick this up? I haven't bought this record, but I knew that it came out. I read that spin article late last year. I, I feel like you actually mentioned it before, like this was coming out at some point, at, you know, during yeah. the year last year. You definitely mentioned the, like, the Lost Tracks ultra-limited double LP that yep. came out by them. You definitely mentioned that, and I thought we had talked about... Um, maybe that was not during the show, though. But uh, I read that this was coming out. I haven't checked it out, but it's worth it, hey? Oh, yeah, man. Yep. yep. Okay, another, like, kind of archival release. The Dream Syndicate box set. Uh, what can I say? No regrets, out of the gray, live demos and outtakes. It's basically an expanded reissue of their criminally underrated third studio album, 1986's Out of the Gray. A bit of a comeback record at the time as they temporarily split up. Basically what happened was during the split, Steve Wynn made an excellent album with Dan Stewart of Green on Red under the name Danny and Dusty, which was produced by Paul Cutler. I know I've talked about Paul before. He's just this totally wild guitar player. He was in the Consumers, 45 Grave, Vox Pop, B People, way later on New Alliance Records as part of United Gang Members with Chuck Dukowski and Bill Stinson. He's a producer. He produced the first Dream Syndicate EP and, coincidentally, the first Plasticland album, a Milwaukee band that Brian Ritchie was in early on. Cool. So what happened was Steve asked Paul to play guitar in a reactivated Dream Syndicate, and that's exactly what happened. They make this record and 1988's follow-up Ghost Stories before breaking up for a second time. An absolute must here is the double album, uh, The Complete Live at Raji's that came out after they broke up as well to get an idea of how amazing this lineup was. This three disc set has out of the gray remastered and available on CD for the first time in 24 years. Uh, And if you've ignored this era of the band, it's a great reminder of how unbelievable they were. Uh, This has tons of demos, B-sides, covers. The real selling point is an unreleased 1985 live set from Scorgies in New York, uh, where the full power of this lineup is on full display. It's on Fire Records, uh, interviews with Steve Paul, uh, Mark Walton, Dennis Duck, highly recommended. Oh, I was just looking at Fire Records today. Yeah. They've uh, they've got another Perubu 
collection coming out. Nice. Another box set called Nuke the Whales. Okay. <laughs> Here's one more, Ryan. I had I had this last year, but I held off on spieling about it in our 2021 roundup because uh, I wanted to give her give it kind of its proper due because mm. it deserves it. And there's a Dream Syndicate tie-in also. It's this phenomenal three-disc box set by a totally underrated LA band kind of associated with that Paisley Underground scene, True West. Uh, the Dream Syndicate connection is singer Gavin Blair and guitarist Russ Tolman were in the pre-Dream Syndicate band The Suspects with Steve Wynn and future Dream Syndicate Opal member Kendra Smith. This set is called Kaleidoscope of Shadows, the story so far. It's pretty much everything you need and then some. It's released by the band, uh, and I bought it direct from their Bandcamp page. Disc 1 has their debut single, their EPs, their debut album Drifters, all of which I already had, but they sound great here, uh, and it's nice to have them all gathered on one CD. There's also some unreleased sessions they did with Tom Verlaine producing. Disc 2 is interesting for me. It's their 1986 album Hand of Fate. It's available here for the first time ever on CD, and I'm slightly embarrassed to say I've never heard it prior to this set. I'd maybe written it off, and as the liner notes suggest, uh, many others have as well, uh, because Russ Tolman, who was one of the main songwriters, had left the band by this point. But wow, it, like, it was a total revelation. It's just as good as their earlier stuff, and I just can't get enough of it. There's also some unreleased demos, which are just as cool from that era. A third disc is all live, CBGB, Scorgies, a bunch from Hamburg and Stockholm, kind of 83 to 85. There's a great booklet with liner notes, band history, tons of bitchin' photos. Definitely looked like rock stars, these guys. I can't recommend this enough. Also interesting, they cover Pink Floyd's Lu Lucifer Sam. The Dream Syndicate box set has them doing a cover of Pink Floyd's Brain Damage. And the 10-minute warning album has them covering the Nile song. Oh, kind of a, a Floyd thread. Kind of a cool coincidence. I was trying to make a bit of a Paisley thread, but it's a Floyd thread. Also, Ryan, uh, I'll just recommend uh, the podcast Paisley Stage Raspberry and Rhyme, which I know I've talked about many times. Yeah. Tons of great episodes. Uh, they've interviewed lots of these people from all of these bands, but they recently, in December of last year, on episode 155 did an album focus on this box set with Ronnie Barnett from the Muffs who's on the show a lot mm. um, he's a fan of all this stuff and knows all these people and Pat Thomas of this really great band Absolute Grey uh, who wrote the liner notes and is in I believe if I'm remembering right the current version of True West uh, Jim Huey from True West and original guitarist Richard McGrath. They're all on the show kind of spieling about this box set and the band's history. It's a great interview. Cool. That's it for me, Ryan. What do you have? All right. I've got two on the tree for you, Brett. Two on the tree. Really? Okay. You couldn't yep. find a third? I couldn't. I tried. I couldn't. <laughs> I probably could, but you know, these, I've been meaning to talk about these for a while, so I, I got to get these off of my chest, you know. Uh, first on the tree is a band called the Gerunds. I don't know how to pronounce it. Maybe Spelling, it's please. Maybe it's Gerunds. Uh, so it's G-E-R-U-N-D-S. The Gerunds. Okay. Got, yeah, got uh, it? I'd say got you're, you're, that's as close as I would have gotten. 
Yeah, I miss I mispronounced a ton of stuff last week on uh, last week's episode, and I'm sure I'm getting this one wrong too. Anyways, the Garands, featuring Pete Cortner from Dag Nasty and Field Day, and of course Los Vampiros. Also in the group, the Garands is Hunter Bennett from Dot Dash and Julie Ocean. This was actually released in 2021. I just uh, got hip to it, so we missed it on our roundup. The album is called Hitsville PA. It's a double LP out on Uranium Rush Records. It's a cool record if you want some more Pete Cortner for sure. It's a bit all over the place with some lo-fi, some upbeat indie sounding type of tracks. It mentions on the Bandcamp page, it says, for fans of Wire, Spoon, Franz Ferdinand, New Order, TV on the Radio, Joy Division, and the B-52s. And that gives you a pretty good sense. And they also released a digital single called Prick Up Your Ears. So uh, some more Pete Cortner. Also on the tree, it's like a very, very distant branch or root. But it is one of the weirdest things that I have uh, come across lately. It's old news probably for some, but it was new for me. It's Land Speed Record, Brant, by Chris Larson. Have you heard of this? Hmm, I don't know. So check this out. Chris Larson is a Minnesota-based artist who works in multimedia, rooted in sculpture, but also includes film, photo, and performance. His art installation, called Land Speed Record, it took place in 2016 and 2017, of course, named after Husker Du's debut album and involved a setup, like a visual film of artifacts from Grant Hart's childhood home after a 2011 fire. It included antiques, auto parts, rock ephemera, master tapes, and instruments. These items became the basis for a meditative film installation that forms both a portrait of an artist and a tribute to a moment in alternative music history. This is how the installation is described. Playing intermittently in the gallery is a recording duplicating Hart's drumming from the Landspeed record album. And it's performed by this guy named Yusuf Delval. Delval learned all 26 minutes and 36 seconds precisely and recorded it at the 7th Street entry alone, with the exception of the artist, Chris Larson, a recording engineer, Grant Hart, and a few of the staff from this um, this gallery where this installation took place called Walker, or the Walker Art Center. DeVal, um, he was not into punk, but he was basically subcontracted by Chris Larson, who was his professor. Deval is a drummer for a metal band called Hate Beast. The way it was described, though, because Deval is like, he plays in like this thrash metal band, Hate Beast, and it's ultra, ultra fast and ultra technical. And the way I was reading all about this, about how he had to learn all 26 minutes and 36 seconds to the exact beat, to the exact, you know, drum pedal and drum stick hit down to the precise atom, you know, and it was described as bringing a surgeon to a knife fight. 
and when they were talking about how like this very technical metal drummer had to learn to play, you know, this piece of music, he had to learn the drums by opening it up in audio editing software in order to actually see it and hear it in order to quote, excavate the drum sounds from the wall of sound. These guys weren't fucking around. Yeah. Duvall said because there was so much info in the music and as soon as you got into a groove, the song was over. It was one of the most difficult pieces of music he's ever had to learn in his life. So this took place at the Walker Art Center in Minneapolis in 2016 and 2017. Why am I telling you this now, though? A little bit late to the game, right? You can buy the album. Yusuf Duval's performance of Landspeed Record on clear vinyl from shop.walkerart.org right now for 20 bucks. They still have copies. And this is how it's described. It contains a duplicate version of Husker Du's original drum track played by Yusuf Duval and recorded at the 7th Street entry on April 14th, 2016. And the album... This LP was released on August 15th, 2016, the 35th anniversary of the recording of Husker Du's Landspeed record. Mm-hmm. So uh, I should know this, but I, I can't recall when Grant passed away. So he was alive to see this, though. You said he was at the recording. They describe it on the website as though there was like five people in the room when Deval recorded it and grant was one of them yes mm-hmm. and they're and when they show pictures of the installation they have pictures of grant like sitting outside the seventh street entry and having a smoke and stuff so it it seems as though he was like part of it and i mean the installation is a film with this drum track played intermittently of grant hart's burnt property right and you can see clips of it on youtube still right now hmm Interesting, man. That's cool. I'm glad Grant got to see that. Yeah, it's just wild. I I had no idea. Like when we talk about, you know, albums that cover SST songs or SST artists, uh, this might be the weirdest one (laughs) next to the Gimme 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 uh, country album. Yeah, it's up there for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what I got, two on the tree, but I thought that second one was pretty unique. Yeah, good one. Right on, man. Let's go to the Sonic Temple. History Lesson, Part 1. All right, Brant, like I said, we've had a few releases from Brian Ritchie on before. We had The Blend, Nuclear War, and then Atomkrieg. And uh, it's been a while since we've had a full length, all the way back to episode 141. So very cool to get into this one. Like I said... I'm pretty sure you're a bigger fan, but I, I will say that I enjoyed this one better than The Blend. Oh yeah, me too, man. I, I yeah. loved The Blend, but I, this one just blew it away for me. Yeah. For sure. I loved yeah. it. I'm with you. Yeah. Yeah. I'll just uh, remind everybody who we're, we're talking about here so they, they know the names when we when we go over to the interview. Brian Ritchie, of course, uh, best known as the bassist and founding member of the Violent Femmes. He plays all manner of instruments on this album, which some of which we'll get into when we when we discuss the tracks. But primarily lead vocals, guitar, and bass. No Shakuhuchi though this time. Nope, he does play his own bass on this one though. Yeah, and that's the thing. Like it sounds like Brian Ritchie playing bass on this record, unlike the blend. 
Uh, well, I kind of thought Cynthia Bartel, I'm pretty sure Brian, if I'm rem- remembering right, taught her how to play bass and she played his bass as well. It definitely had some... Doesn't sound like this on, yeah. on doesn't sound like it does on this record for me though. I don't know. This sounded like Brian Ritchie from the Violent Femmes. For sure. That one. Yeah. yeah. John Cruth on mandolin, flute, harmonica, and more. And um, if anybody hasn't heard, we had John on for episodes 186 and 187. Great doubleheader. Yeah, and you're you were reading one of his uh, his John and Yoko book recently too, weren't you? Yep. Yeah, I talked about that a few episodes ago. Then we've got Chris Loss, drums, congas, marimba, etc. You'll hear about him in the interview. We've got Abdul Hamid Alawan, tabla, temple bells. Uh, he was on the blend. And then our guest this week, Brian's main collaborator on these albums, sax player Peter Balistreri. Peter was a fixture on the Milwaukee scene. He was one of the earliest supplemental musicians to play with the Femmes. And by the time of their second record, Hollowed Ground, you know, he was pretty much absorbed into the band, playing on many of their albums, expanding the horn section, eventually expanded into the Horns of Dilemma. I'm going to read you, Ryan, this front page from the SST press kit, because it's really good. It doesn't give any credit, but I think this has got to be the Spaceman. It says... Brian Ritchie is known the world over as the innovative bassist for the influential Violent Femmes. He's the one who puts the raw in the Milwaukee trio's rock. His solo work, however, features him as a songwriter and multi-instrumentalist at the helm of an eclectic ensemble. I acknowledge no musical boundaries, Brian says. Too many modern musicians try to limit themselves by pigeonholing their music. With mine, I'm trying to achieve total freedom of expression. Since the beginning of his career, Brian Ritchie has explored and integrated world musics and has played in a variety of combos, from the latter-day psychedelic band Plastic Land to a jazz big band and even within the rock framework of the Violent Femmes. Brian has consistently introduced new sounds and voices to an unsuspecting public. Indeed, his first solo album, The Blend, caught many listeners off guard. The entrancing moods and fascinating array of instruments surprised those expecting a series of acoustic bass jams. Conch shells, elephant tusk, tabla, banjo, and jews harp were only a part of his unique musical arrangement. Sonic Temple and Court of Babylon is Brian Ritchie's latest world consciousness-raising aggregation. Once again, an array of ethnic and eccentric sounds provides the backdrop for both private concerns and cosmic conundrums. When addressing an unfaithful lover in Why Did You Lie to Me? or his fellow man in Reach Out, his human concerns are absolutely down to earth. But on the lunar goo, gravity is the least of his concerns. These fantasy-oriented songs, he explains, have nothing to do with real life. I'm not a protest gun. I'm not out to change the world with my songs. I just write about what's on my mind at the moment. Sometimes I write about stupid things like America or global politics. And for others, I simply use my imagination. These flights of fancy transport the listener to a psychedelic landscape, particularly in the chanted title song and the laudatory Sun Ra Man from Outer Space. Hassani Saba, however, is actually based on a historical account of an ancient Eastern leader 
who kept his marauding armies loyal through a steady supply of women and hashish. Brian confesses to a hedonistic use of multi-instrumentalists on this LP, including John Cruth on mandolin, flutes, clarinet, and harmonica, Chris Loss on drums and percussion, zither, xylophone, and accordion, Peter Balistreri on saxes and backing vocals, and Abdul Hamid Alawan on Arabic tabla and Tibetan bells. Awash in a forest of musical strains from around the world, Brian Ritchie has returned to cleanse your spirit and give you the global lowdown. Oh, what does he say on there? I'm not a protest pistol? He says, I'm not a protest gun. You know, that statement really caught my attention because this is an incredibly political album, Mm -hmm. right? Yep, for sure it is. So was his last one. This one's more so, I would say. Totally overt, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Like the previous record, this one was also recorded at the Perversion Room with David Vartanian, who co-produced the record. It was released on CD, LP, and cassette in 1988. Shall we kick it over to Peter? Yeah, man. All right. I'm joined on the podcast today by Peter Balistreri. Peter, thanks for being on the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Okay. So going back to Milwaukee, is that where you grew up in Milwaukee? Yeah. So went- I grew up in Milwaukee and uh, uh, started playing in in bands uh, uh, towards the end of eighth grade, and then did like something senior year in high school, and then didn't do anything mm-hmm. again until probably like almost uh, uh, you know ten years later. Then I. I I had uh, just split up uh, from a marriage and uh, my girlfriend's brother-in-law had a band. He was in a band and uh, he said, you know, you should play with us. And I said, oh, you know, I, I really don't know how to play. And he said, oh, you know, that, that doesn't matter. It's a punk band. <laughs> and it, it wasn't a punk band at all. It was more of a new wave band and they were doing, you know, they were like one of those bands that would do uh, Talking Heads covers and, and uh dead boys and i mean just a a big television a big range of covers and then they would do their own sort of uh uh, versions of other kinds of music so uh uh, this band was called buck byron and the little seizures (laughs) And, and i um the first song that i started trying to play with them was leslie gore's it's my party uh yeah. No, no, it was You Don't Own Me. That's right. It was You Don't Own Me. And I learned it in the wrong key. And I came to practice and started playing. And, uh, uh, you know, the, the guitar player said, no, man, that's the wrong key. It's in this key. And I said, well, I'm sorry. I can't just, like, switch keys. I'm going to have to go home and practice, and I'll come back next week. And and I came back the following week, and I had, I had still – pick the wrong key listening to the record i'd still pick the wrong key (laughs) so that was the first sort of like major band that i was in and when i was in that band uh i was walking down the street one day with our keyboard player my really good friend uh uh, and and brian ritchie's good friend too uh jeff warman and uh we saw this you know like 16 17 year old guy and he's postering and as we walked up, you know, we said, uh, oh, you know, you're in a band, postering for a band? Uh, who is it? And he looked at us and he said, yeah, I know you guys. 
you guys are in the little seizures. Cover <laughs> band, you, you know, you, you, you guys are nothing. Right. <laughs> and, you know, we both kind of like looked at each other and, and you know, we're smiling. And, and uh, he said, uh, I'm Brian Ritchie. My band, I, I've got a band and my band's the best band in Milwaukee right now. And we said, yeah, okay. And, uh, and then he said something like, uh, someday I'm going to be one of the, I'm going to be one of the greatest bass players in the world. <laughs> and, and, you know, Jeff and I, you know, we weren't like, we weren't being like critical at all. We both kind of just said, well, you know, go for it, man, go yeah. head on. Yeah. You know, yeah. Sounds good. And then, you know, like a little bit of time went by and Brian moved into Jeff's house, uh, to Jeff's apartment. Okay. And, uh, uh, oh man, there's a million uh, stories that come out of that. And then Jeff and I, and another guy named Tim Taylor, uh, started a band called the ghostly trio mm -hmm. and I was playing in that band and we would occasionally open for the femmes. We opened for the femmes in New York, uh, at Gertie's folk city and did like some other stuff with them. And I had been seeing Brian with Victor, uh, Di Lorenzo, the femmes first, uh, drummer. Right. And we're in a band called the Romboids. And that was an interesting band. So and so it, when you ran into Brian on the street, the band he was yeah. talking about, I'm in the best band in Milwaukee. That no, was, no, no. That was like, that was years later. I can't, I actually can't remember the name of that first band that Brian had. And they were pretty good. I, I, you know, I got to say, they were pretty good. Yeah. yeah but I, I can't remember. And then, you know, he was in different like bands and, and, uh, when I when I met up with them again, I was the lead singer and, and sax player in a band called The Points. It was like a band that was kind of devoted to the jam and then started to become kind of hardcore around the edges. Yeah. Uh, very strange. Very strange band. But we had started to gig and a lot, and especially out of town, and started to make real money. And we started headlining, headlining at places like Tuts in Chicago. And I, I started going to these jams, these freeform jams, uh, that one that a, a guy was holding in his basement, and guys from all kinds of different bands across Milwaukee uh, that were, you know, not not playing the same kinds of music at all, but who had some kind of an interest in, in free improv and stuff like that and noise uh, would show up. And I, I went to one of these jams. I heard about it and I went to one of these jams and we were all playing together. And I saw Brian and Victor and I knew who they were. Uh, I especially knew Brian because he was living at, uh, at Jeff's house. So when we got done playing, they came up to me and Victor said, so, you know, what do you do when you're not imitating Albert Eiler? <laughs> and I had been playing free improv for quite a while, but I wasn't hip to free jazz and I wasn't hip to uh, uh, a lot of the different uh, African-American uh, artists that, you know, were working like that. Like the avant-garde. And so I heard Albert Eiler and I, I said, you know, uh, Albert Eiler. And, you know, this became like one of those famous stories where, you know, Pete's <laughs> playing like Albert Ayler and says, who's Albert Ayler? And it, I wasn't exactly like Albert Ayler at all. But, but 
uh, they laughed and they said, you know, we've got this cool new band and you should sit in with us. And I said, what is it? And he said, you know, it's called Violent Femmes. And at that point, they were having trouble getting gigs. They didn't play gigs in clubs or bars. They were getting gigs in restaurants and doing a lot of busking on the street and playing like house parties and frat parties. And then they managed to get this gig at the jazz gallery on the night that where there was no band and they started playing on Tuesday nights and I was working at the jazz gallery and I would get done doing my job. I'd go home and then I'd cab back to the gallery to watch their show. And the first thing that I remember noticing was that their audience was like 20 women at all 20 women and they were super into this band that had just started and they were singing along to the songs so i just immediately you know to me i wasn't immediately attracted to the femmes at all i mean like almost not at all a lot of what they were doing, I felt was kind of precious. And some of it was, you know, I don't know, just, I don't know. It just, it, it wasn't like anything that I was that crazy about at first. But what I knew somehow deep inside of me was there's something going on here. There's some element of phenomenon going on here. And I'm not picking up on it, but it's there. Right. So... When, when they asked me to start sitting in with them, it was mainly like, you know, we've got this party on Friday, you know, do you want to come and play on a couple of songs? And, you know, they always had songs in the repertoire that were, that were kind of bluesy or, or were folk, you know, like folk blues or folk rock. And I could, you know, I could play that kind of stuff. And so that's how my relationship with them started. And then they went on one tour uh, to the East Coast, and that's when they got the big write-up and uh, by Chris Gow. And you know, there were there were people saying, you know, it's the second coming, and mm-hmm. this is the future of, of rock because that was right at the beginning of Roots. And and you know, we were playing with bands like well, we had the same management as Los Lobos, right? And and uh, the you know, we were always playing gigs with the blasters. So we were part of that, that initial roots uh, uh, thrust, but, but that was how I started playing with them. And then they went on one tour out to the East coast. And when that tour was over, they came home and their manager who lived in New York and their sound man both said, we'll never go out on tour with these guys again. And their manager said to me, you know, I know you've been playing with the band and, everybody likes you, would you start touring with the band? And we want you to be road manager. We want you to help drive. We want you to help, you know, because we had no roadies or anything like that. We want you to help with the equipment. And, you know, you get to play all the songs that you've been playing with them. And 
you know, and by then I was playing harmonica, I was singing on songs, I was playing sax, and and uh, I said, yeah. And, and that's how it started. And so for that first year and a half or so, it was just the four of us in a van uh, with all the equipment and everything else. And their manager was, uh, uh, their manager was, he was, yeah. <laughs> you know, for, he had us on this like just ridiculous allowance where we, we, we couldn't afford to eat. And uh, that all broke down. And we, we always had to sleep on people's floors for at least the first two years. And then, you know, after a while, they realized that there was, you know, it wasn't big money, but there was money coming in. There was enough money to rent a, a, a motel room and share it between four guys. So then things started to change. And right. I don't know exactly like when Brian, I can remember when Brian first decided to do a solo album, uh, but I can't remember what year that was anymore. Yeah, the, uh, well, the the first SST one, anyways, the blend would have been eighty seven ish. Okay, yeah. So you know, by then the band's already been together for like six or seven years. Yeah. Through that time, Brian and I had spent a lot of time hanging out together in Milwaukee, uh, and you know, we listened to a lot of music together. We hung out together. We had the same, we didn't have the same taste in music, but we had a lot of the same, we had a lot of the same touch points. So, you know, Arabic music, there was a lot of Arabic music that we both were really, really into. Like who? There was give, a give lot. Me, give me some names. Well, you know, we were really into uh, uh, the uh, master musicians from Jujuka. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were really into a number of the famous Oud players and I, I'd be really hard, Hams Aldin and people like that. And, and some, I can't remember now, but some people that were mixing uh, uh, Moroccan music and Andalusian music in some kind of, uh, you know, sort of a, a, a pre-Golden Age of Spain kind of a, a cool way. And uh, the Moroccan, uh, uh, hippie band, uh, psychedelic band, Gil Gila. But uh, there was just a lot of stuff. And then, you know, we were we were doing stuff like listening to Radio Cairo on shortwave. Oh. Because Radio Cairo, when, when I first found out about it and we started listening to it, you know, you could turn into Radio Cairo and hear Um Kulthum, uh, uh or, you know, some people pronounce her name Um Kulthum. Uh, the Egyptian singer who became famous uh, like mid-century, right, you know, straight through for, I don't know, 30, 40, 50 years, and is has still this enormous presence in, in, Egypt, in Egypt in terms of Egyptian music. And we started, you know, listening to that kind of stuff. Interesting. Yeah, folk music, both Arabic folk music, but also like Arabic urban music and sort of more modern uh, uh, Arabic music that that was floating around in the 70s and 80s. I feel like the the common inspiration maybe and not just musically but in all things uh, seems to be Sun Ra. Yeah. Yeah. I mean that was another thing that you know 
Brian and I were really into experimental music of all kinds. So whether you're talking about like Edgar Varese or, or, you know, I mean, whether it was classical experimental, uh, John Cage or, or uh, uh, we're into all of that. Right. And then we're also into, you know, uh, anybody that was doing anything even vaguely like Sun Ra. And, and Sun Ra was a huge, huge, you know, touch point for us because so much stuff that that we liked was all kind of there in that one band. Mm-hmm. And the Ra was, you know, Ra was just, Ra was unbelievable. But for me, you know, I eventually got to hang out uh, with uh, Marshall Allen and uh, with John, uh, oh gosh, shame on me, poor old brain. Uh, uh, Marshall Allen's partner, the famous tenor player, and I'm just blanking on his last name, Chamber, not John Chamberlain, no. But this is the guy who taught uh, uh, modal harmonies to uh, John Coltrane, mm. blanking on his name. But to be able to hang out with those guys, you know, and Marshall Allen was the, in, in Sun Ra's band, Marshall Allen was the first sax player that I saw that was using the sax the way that I had been using the sax since I was in high school as a, as a percussion instrument where you're blowing, but you're not paying attention to what notes you're hitting. You're doing something physical with, with the keys that's rhythmic, that has nothing to do with precision. And, and he was the only other person I, you know, had seen up to that point that was doing that. And and you just hit on that on your own. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, cause I, I wasn't I wasn't taught I wasn't trained to read music uh, and when I first started playing noise in in high school I was in a band called Incognito and I just I just explored you know I just explored all the different ways to make noise with it <laughs> and and that all came in really handy uh, in the fems because I couldn't play you know whether it was in the Femmes or, or with Brian, I couldn't play typical rock and roll. You're saxophone. not Bobby Keys. <laughs> I'm not Bobby Keys, you know, who, who I love, yeah. who I love and adore, right? Yeah. Uh, uh, so many just really traditional sax players that I've really enjoyed and, and loved over the years. But, you know, to, to any kind of real extent, I can't do that. I also can't play straight jazz, you know, but that isn't, I can play the blues and I can, I can, you know, play a lot of rock and roll, but not in that way that, you know, people identify with. So, so when I joined the band and, and, and started playing in the band, it it wasn't too long before there was an interview where Brian was asked, yeah, you know, what's going on with these horns and, and, you know, what's up with that? It's so weird. And Brian said, you know, we could get all kinds of different sax players and they wouldn't be right. The reason that we have Pete is because he's right for the band. He's playing the sounds that, that I want to hear. And what he was mainly referring to wasn't stuff like faith. He was referring to stuff like black girls and, and a lot of what was happening 
on stage in the live shows. It wasn't on the albums. Yeah, it you, wasn't... you don't hear it on the records, but it it seems like your circle of friends just that ended up playing on the blend, more people on the blend seemed to get dialed down on the on the second record like that that circle but seemed like improvising was such a big part of what what you were all interested in yeah because brian is he's just you know an amazing improviser and what i've learned about improv over the years is that everybody develops a vocabulary everybody that does it for any length of time develops a vocabulary and returns over and over again to certain themes to certain kinds of you know things but in general his heart and his mind and his energy was really really focused on being in the moment and and trying to not repeat himself and you know that doesn't mean that when you went to a live show you didn't hear you know a really close approximation sure. to what was the album yeah until you got to the solos right yeah and the solos yeah that's where everything just broke loose and you know like on stage the chemistry that would happen between uh different people gordon and i always because i stood behind i always stood behind gordon to his left so gordon and i had this real chemistry that would break out at at points that you know weren't always like the right point but we would be getting off on each other so for instance held her in my arms which is a song that you know a lot of people have liked over the years and wanted to talk to me about and i you know they're always wanting to compliment me on the solo in held her in my arms and of course that's not me that's uh steve mckay from the stooges yep Steve toured with the band for a long time and Steve and I got to be really good pals. And, you know, it was just one of those things that I, I, I always felt like I could, I could out improvise Steve any night, any, any time. And Steve could always out traditional, you know, play me. We complimented each other in this really great way. Something like Helder in my arms there was no question that I was going to play the solo because just not, it just wouldn't have be, it wouldn't have been what it was, which was the appropriate solo for that song. But when Steve left the band and I kept playing with them, then I started taking the solo and I would push the solo sometimes into like places where it probably shouldn't have gone. But Gordon would get off on that and Gordon would start to jam with me, which he also wasn't supposed to do in that song. Now both of us are, are soloing and getting off on each other and the song has stopped being held in my arms. And, you know, we would I, I would think that it was really cool and we'd be you know, really happy and then I'd, I'd get the look from Brian. I would know <laughs> that he wasn't happy. And we'd come off stage, and then he'd, then he, you know, he'd start to, he'd start to talk to me. He's like, you know, what was that? You know, what were we? Don't do that anymore. Don't do that in Heller in my arms anymore. Mm. Oh, come on, you know, that was great. And Gordon and I, and, he, and you know, and you know, and 
you know, he'd look at you and he wouldn't say anything. He'd just be, you know, staring at me. And then, and, and then say, don't do that anymore. <laughs> you know, and I'd say, hey, well, you know, you're the boss. <laughs> it, it, and then, you know, like two nights later or a week later or something, it would happen again. It's, so he was funny that way, you know. He he definitely was somebody that was willing to always push the boundaries in every way possible. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, he could get, you know, he 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 could get funny about stuff and and wanted you know things to be this way or that way. And so you're right. All of the solo albums have just, you know, so much wild soloing and improv on them. But at the same time, you know, he would come into the studio for all of those albums with a really pretty clear sense of how every one of those songs was going to go. And yeah, there were, you know, here's here's your part. Here's your part to do whatever you want. Don't be messing around. Don't get cute. (laughs) You shouldn't be messing around. No, I mean seriously, very, very much in that in that kind of a, a, a frame of mind, you know. Okay, I want to fast forward a bit to Sonic Temple and Court of Babylon. Then, so I'll ask. Yeah. I'm going to ask you about a few of the people that played on the record. Uh, Please, Chris Loss. Who who who's Chris Loss? Chris Loss was a guy, and again, I. The name of the band that he was in, like right on the tip of my tongue, but I'll never remember it. <laughs> Sloss was in some, you know, and there were there was no name for the music then, right? This is before anybody said alternative. It's before anybody said indie. I mean, if it was called anything, it was either punk, new wave hardcore and and college rock yeah (laughs) and a lot of times we were called college rock and you know we always hated that but that was that was like a marketing thing right so chris was in some kind of (laughs) indie alternative you know i can't i just can't remember like what exactly and he knew brian and I think that I think that Brian definitely, you know, was into his playing, thought thought that he could play. Chris had a weird personality <laughs> that didn't like always like mesh with like the rest of the group. And and this really came to, you know, it, you don't spend that much when you're recording you're hanging around. You don't really get to know anybody that well. But when we went on tour and we were all together 24 hours a day, every day, yeah, that's when we all kind of like realized that Chris had a lot of quirks <laughs> and, and, and we, you know, didn't always get along. And, and that wasn't just me. It was other people in the band and him too. And there were just, yeah. So Chris was, uh, uh, kind of a zany he was just kind of a zany guy from a local you know a local band that brian tapped you know to to do the job if i'm gonna try and say his name abdul hamid alawan he is sort of a major arabic cultural figure in milwaukee he uh, uh owns 
a, a Mediterranean and Middle Eastern import shop uh, that's that's uh, pretty famous. Mm-hmm. And he himself has many other claims to fame. He is, along with, uh, and I'm not sure if, if my friend Mike Cashew is still uh, working with him, and we can talk about Mike, because Mike part of this too. Okay. So we'll talk about Mike soon. But uh, he and Mike Cashew together, probably some of the finest uh, uh, Arabic drum makers in the country, hmm. using really, really, really old techniques, using drum heads made from these insanely tough Nile River fish that are some of the strongest, oh. most beautiful drum heads in the world. They're making the they're making the drums out of clay. Wow. They have their own kiln. They fire their own drums. I mean, these drums are sought after uh, by Arabic musicians all over the country. So uh, uh, he's got that going on. Then he himself is also a really, really great uh, uh, drummer. Mm-hmm. His is is amazing, and my cashew. Uh, is also <laughs> just an outstanding, outstanding Arabic drummer who's taught at the conservatory, okay. at the musical conservatory in Milwaukee, has taught Arabic drumming for years. Mike is also an insanely great oud player. And you can find videos on YouTube of Mike Cashew playing oud at Arabic music festivals in India. Mike's got the creds. Abdul just, and Abdul has changed his name. And I believe that he now prefers to be called either Hamid or, or Amid. I can't remember. And I apologize to him. His connections to Arabic uh, music throughout the country you know, when when uh, uh, the musicians, master musicians of Jujuka came to Milwaukee and played at the Paps Theater, I was with Mike Cashew, and we were sitting uh, right behind uh, Hamid and his wife and all of these other people, and we were just ecstatic, you know. Uh, and so going to the shop a lot, listening to music uh, with him, going to concerts of Arabic music, Brian got to be really good friends with him. And it was kind of a natural that as Brian got more and more into Arabic music, he would reach out uh, uh, to Hamid to, you know, start doing some drumming, to sit in and start doing some drumming. Uh, you mentioned Mike then. He's not on the record. Was he on the tour? Mike was definitely part of what Brian, after after Sonic Temple came out, Brian uh, uh, started a band called uh, uh, Brian Ritchie and the International Quo Vadis Nomads. <laughs> and that band had, that was me and Chris and Mike Cashew and John Cruth yep. from New York. I think that's it. And then that changed later on after uh, we recorded it, uh, the next album, which wasn't for SST. Yep. And and we we stopped using Chris and we got a different drummer and John Cruz uh, didn't come along. And that was a great tour. That was a tour of Europe, but 
yeah, I'm I'm drifting here. Who else is on? Uh, I, <laughs> I I think just John. So John Cruz is an absolutely amazing uh, musician and uh, author, music author. Yeah. Uh, anybody that has, you know, if you look up John Cruz's name, you'll see that John Cruz has written an amazing number of books on all kinds of really interesting people like Louie Bluey and uh, uh, Sun Ra and Oh, I'm, he, he would kill me. He would be so angry with me right now for not. not <laughs> we, we've talked about projects. some of them. We've talked about, we, we had John on the show actually. And, uh, oh, great. Okay. Yeah. Well, I'm off the hook then. Yeah. You're, you're okay. off the I'm hook. I'm sure John talked about every yeah. single project he's ever done. <laughs> uh, he, he's got this cool band now called Tribekistan yeah. uh, uh, in New York and, and he's doing all kinds of projects and he just writes in, 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 incredible uh you know he's really prolific he's a good writer he does his homework he's really rigorous and he he you know he he picks really interesting subjects people that he's interested in music that he's interested he's not just trying to sell books or make money and i doubt if he's making much money if any money at it at all he could easily write you know, the definitive biography of the films and, and maybe, you know, make some kind of money doing that. But I'm sure that he has no, absolutely no interest, no interest <laughs> in doing that. Unless he said that he did. And and if he did, I take it back. Oh, I believe when we talked to him, I'd have to go back and listen to it. But I think he said uh, over COVID, he's been kind of writing his, his memoir. Oh, which sure. Would, which would include yeah. the films for sure. And I've recorded on John's solo projects, and Mike Cashew played bass for John Cruth. Yeah. I mean, when you play with Brian Ritchie, you're playing with a coterie, right? You're playing with a gang. Yeah. You're playing with a, a group of people who have all been in each other's bands, have all been, you know, in the most incestuous kinds of, you know, musical relationships and... So I've played in John Cruz's bands and, and Mike Cashew has, and Mike Cashew and I have played in different bands together. And, you know, Mike Cashew, Mike Cashew was the guy who recorded all of the first Garbage album. Oh. And when it came time for Garbage to tour, Mike, who's, you know, a guy in his 30s at that point, and, and his starts to have a receding hairline, they told Mike that he looked too old and that they were going to get somebody younger for the tour. But all of that really great bass playing on that first Garbage album, uh, that's all Mike. Uh-huh. Mike used to be in a band with Mitch, the, the guy that produced Garbage, that did the, that produced Nirvana. Oh, uh, are you talking Butch Vig? Butch Vig. Yeah. So was in a band with Butch Vig and a couple other guys that used to back up the Femmes. That's how I met Mike Cashew. We met, Mike didn't live in Milwaukee. He was from Madison. Uh-huh. And we met him and Brian and Mike became good friends. And he was in a band, boy, I'll never remember the name of that band either. But two of the guys from that band, when the band broke up, stayed in New York and they started The Kitchen. So, I mean, that enormous, long-lived performance space. Yeah, I mean, yeah. God, 
bands that performed at the kitchen. Yeah. That was also connected to Mike and Butch Vig was part of that band. And then Butch just went on to do all this producing. But then I think Butch played on the garbage tours he, too. He, well, he played on the albums for sure. Yeah. I'm assuming the tours. So, so, you know, like when that band broke up, Mike, uh, uh, Brian hired Mike to be his guitar roadie, Femmes. So we were always getting thrown together. And then, you know, uh, Brian had a solo band. Brian had a solo project in Milwaukee called Elephant Lip Mm -hmm. recorded. And I was in that, too, sharing the, the lead vocals. And that's where some of the songs that wound up on Brian's solo albums we started playing those songs as songs in Elephant Lip. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've heard that name be tossed around, and I, I believe yeah. that's the band that toured with maybe with the Meat Puppets and or Pear Ubu, or or maybe that was just the Brian Ritchie band by that point. That was the Brian Ritchie band, and that was with uh, um, Cynthia. So that was, I think, with probably... A, some of the people that were on the blend, mm-hmm. uh, but not me. Okay, so you toured Sonic Temple and Court of Babylon, though. I toured Sonic Temple and Court of Babylon. I did, I did like other American stuff with him before that. That came over the span of the three SST albums. You know, we were he was doing solo stuff, and I was always in on that stuff. Brian and I had a band for a while called Two-Headed Monster. And that a band that was playing some of Brian's solo songs that wound up on the albums. But we were also doing just really a lot of noise and, and, and free stuff. And we opened for Jonathan Richmond. And uh, uh, Jonathan Richmond was really pissed off. <laughs> And, and you know he he's pretty particular I, he I think he expected it to be something like the femmes and he yeah. probably thought that if it was like the femmes it would be fine and right, it would right. he was solo i mean it wasn't modern lovers yeah. modern lovers was just richmond solo yeah. but he you know there's only two guys it's not going to be a big band it'll probably fit in real nice but it was this other thing <laughs> was brian playing like electric guitar and me playing sax or Brian playing banjo and me playing, you know, sax and, oh, and Jonathan Richmond was so pissed off. <laughs> he, he really complained and said that. Uh, was, I, I don't think he, uh, I don't think he allows uh, support acts on his tours anymore. <laughs> no, I think he just realized that he was much better off not, yeah. not having anybody, you know, just, but, you know, in the early days, he would have people with him that seemed to fit really well. Like, are you familiar with Carmeg DeForest? No. Carmeg DeForest was a, a solo folk guy, and Carmeg would open for the Femmes a lot. We got to be really good friends friends with Carmeg. Carmeg had, like, this, you know, 15 minutes of intense fame with a, a punk. He played ukulele. Okay. So he was a punk ukulele player. And he he was on like the house party circuit and then kind of moved from there to small clubs and opened for us in some small club. And then for years and years, even after we got really big, 
Like if we were going to play Vegas and play the hard rock in Vegas, Carmig, we would get Carmig to come and open up for us. And he had some song, and I can't remember now. It was political in nature, mm. and it got to be really popular uh, because it was really political in nature. And I just I can't remember now what that was. Probably something to do with Reagan, I bet. And <laughs> yeah, it was. It was definitely in the vein as the Femmes, yeah. Mother Reagan, Mother Reagan song. Yeah. Uh, yeah. What do you what do you remember about the tour for this? Did you play with all different bands, or was it a tour you know with one band like the whole tour? Uh, do you remember? We like, never did that. Never did that. Uh, are, are we talking about the Femmes now? No, I'm talking the Sonic Temple tour. Sonic Temple. Yeah. The Sonic Temple tour. I don't remember anybody playing with us. Mm-hmm. I remember that we played. We opened for. So we had three unbelievable nights opening for Joe Strummer and the Mescaleros. Oh, wow. In Italy. Wow. And it <laughs> up with us playing in one of the biggest venues in Rome, opening uh, uh, for the Mescaleros and Strummer. And I want to tell you that the bigger the, the, bigger the, the, the name of the band or the bigger the name of the musician of so many of the people that we met, uh, the nicer they were. Yeah. And Joe Strummer was one of the nicest, most generous uh, uh, guys that we ever encountered. And, you know, there was no reason for him to spend any time with us at all. And from the very first gig, he came to our dressing room. He hung out. He talked to us a lot. Wow. He asked us, he said, we've got a lot of food in our dressing room. Are you guys hungry? Do you want some food? Mm. Uh, uh, Joey, Ramon, <laughs> Joey Ramon did the same thing uh, uh, really early on with the Femmes when we opened for the Ramones. One of the only times I ever remember opening for anybody. Opened for the Ramones in New Jersey. And Joey Ramon came backstage and told us that he loved the Femmes and thought it was so cool that we were playing with them. And he asked us if we like pizza. And we said, yeah. And he said, well, you know, we ate before we came and there's like six or seven pizzas there. Do you want them? <laughs> and he went and got pizzas and brought us all his pizzas. Wow. Drummer, uh, that very first night after talking to us for a long time, he said, you know what? We got here this afternoon and we all like slept this afternoon and we're taking off right after the gig. Do you guys want our hotel rooms? Oh, wow said, wow, yeah, that would be great. He said, fine, I'll work it all out. Uh, you guys have our hotel rooms for the night, and you know, we'll see you at the next gig. Wow. And he, he just he kept that up the whole time, the whole time. Just such a great guy, and we, you know, we had a great time with him. What, what, and, a, and, what a perfect fit musically, too. Oh, and we played like, I mean, that was a great tour. We spent... We spent a month in Italy playing from, uh, you know, we played uh, Switzerland and then we came down and we got to Rome and then we used Rome as our base because Brian was married to Louisa and I'm forgetting Louisa's name. Uh, Louisa, I apologize. The former Mrs. Uh, uh, Brian Ritchie. Louisa was 
a rock journalist, an Italian rock journalist. And they met and, and got married. And she lived in Rome. She had an apartment in Rome. And Brian and I were staying at her apartment and the other guys were different places. And we used that as our base. And then, you know, we played Naples and then we'd go back to Rome and we'd play Bari and we'd go back to Rome. So we were there for a month just playing constant gigs. And, you know, we were doing things like at that time uh, uh, in Italy, some of the best clubs you could play in were the clubs that were run by the Communist Party. I mean, it's like, you know, they really, really knew how to run a club. Yeah. yeah. And uh, we played this place uh, in Naples called KGB. And and there were a lot of Italian journalists there uh, talking to us that night. And they were really curious because I had an Italian last name and they wanted to know about this Italian guy <laughs> in the Violent Femmes. And we just had a great time. And, you know, the... It was that kind of thing where everybody that worked at the club all ate dinner together. Mm -hmm. And if you were in the club, you ate with them too. Oh my God, you know, the, the, the food. Uh, it's not, you know, you, you play the States and, you know, you put in your time and, and you tour and, you know, you're lucky if they're willing to like buy you one pizza for dinner yeah. or you show up there's like a, a package of bologna and, and, uh, uh, you know, a loaf of white bread. And, and, you know, we got that, you know, uh, for a long time. And then you go to Europe and they start to treat you like, you know, they, they appreciate like the fact that you're there. They, they treat you like you're an artist or something. Yeah. Yep. And, and that tour, that tour, uh, we would play really weird places where like we showed up at this anarchist collective, like a squat, basically probably. This was the farm. Yeah. And there was this anarchist collective that was running it and totally DIY. And we showed up. And when we showed up, they said, you know, we're waiting for the generator to come. Uh, and we really can't put the show on and unless we have the generator. And we said, yeah, that's fine. We'll wait. But, you know, then it started to turn into hours and it was, you know, it's getting later and later. We've been waiting there for like four hours and, you know, there's no such thing as a cell phone, you know, and, and we finally just said, you know, we're really sorry, but, you know, and they said, can't you just like play acoustic? And, and at, by that, I, at that point, Brian and Louisa had both kind of had it and, and, you know, we just left. Yeah. So there things like that but then there was also you know things like that huge gig in rome with with joe strummer and and that was amazing we played in uh we played a fantastic gig in and you know we're and so we're playing not just the songs on sonic temple but we're playing songs from all the solo albums right the very first gig of that tour was playing at the highest point in athens which is an amphitheater and so we're playing this amphitheater, and what we didn't know was that about three or four hundred people, uh, it was sold out, and there were three or four hundred people outside, and then that crowd started to grow, and they started to break their way in. But we didn't see any of this, and we didn't know any of this, and riots broke out, and through our whole show, this crowd was fighting with the cops. And it was tear gas and truncheons and 
the riot shields. And we didn't find out about any of it until the next day when we saw the pictures in the newspaper. Wow. Uh, the promoter uh, was talking to us about it. But that night was a, that night was an, an insane night because after the show and the way that show was going, uh, Brian always came out to do the Brian always came out to do the encore by himself. He would do he would play song without any end, which is yeah. one of the ones that I wrote the lyrics to solo on banjo. You know, that's um, the chorus is. Uh, like to shoot off his mouth, like to shoot off his gun. So he was troubled. And it was funny, he was a poet, a boxer, a devil, a friend. He was a song without any end. And yeah, that <laughs> that was a lot of fun. I, and and uh, while Brian was performing that, the very first night of that tour in Athens, I'm sitting backstage with Mike Cashew and the new drummer and a woman just flies into the dressing room and she's, you know, yelling. She's really happy, but she's yelling stuff at us in Greek and she pulls off her blouse and runs up to me and starts planting this huge kiss on me pulls her blouse which doesn't fit over my head and runs out <laughs> we finished the gig we got taken back to our hotel and we spent the whole rest of that night sitting out on the balcony of my room listening to radio cairo and just looking out over athens and there was a like a full moon or almost a full moon in the sky it was unbelievable wow. and you know were and and we were playing you know we're in greece we're playing these you know uh, quasi pseudo arabic songs and we're just really feeling it you know and this tour this is really funny because at the end of the fems tour that came before us doing this i had started I went to this Western store. We were on tour and we went to San Jose and I went to some Western store that was near the hotel and I bought a Stetson and I bought a cowboy belt and I bought cowboy boots and a couple of Western shirts and I grew a mustache and became the cowboy. Uh, and Brian thought that this was hilarious. Not that it was cool. This other thing that Brian described as dorkadelic. <laughs> and he, he thought this was cool. And so he went out and bought the same exact cowboy hat and cowboy boots. And when we were starting this tour for uh, uh, to, to support Sonic Temple, Brian said, let's make this the ugly American tour. And we'll both wear our cowboy stuff every night. <laughs> and, and every night, you know, and, and Brian, in all of Brian's solo projects where I worked with Brian, he was, uh, uh, you know, really, really generous to me in, in sharing that front line. Right. 
but was always Brian and I standing next to each other in the front line. And, and whether I was singing backup or, or whatever I was doing, uh, I was always right up in front with him. So I, I definitely get the impression on the two SST records and for sure the follow-up, uh, I see a noise. I hear a noise. Yeah. 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 Uh, I think that's the one that I actually wrote the most I, lyrics. I, I, I'd say so. Yeah. I, I, uh, it seems that way in the credits. This one, the one song I, I wanted to ask you about, about the, uh, that you wrote the lyrics to, I believe about the Mayerling incident. Yeah. Tell me about that. So, okay. Okay. So Brian, you know, a uh, uh, good songwriter writing a lot of songs, and, you know, not like he needs any help or anything like that. But he knew that I could write lyrics and didn't have a whole lot of, you know, to be honest, didn't have a whole lot of musical ideas, but had some. He was, you know, he was happy to, you, let, let me tell you how we would work together. Like he would come to me and he would say, write me a song about Sun Rock. And what he meant by that was write the, write the structure of the song lyrically. Right. And I'll, you know, he'd come up with the music. But write the lyrics in such a way that there were, you know, choruses, right. verses, breaks, and he'd do the rest. And that's how we mostly work together. But every now and then there would be something like, Meyerling or let's drink some wine. Uh, and I think I always, I think I always called it let's drink some wine, but it's called Meyerling for a reason. And I'm, I'm coming to that. And this was one of those times when I had a whole song and I said, Hey, you know, I've got this song and I've written the music and the words. And, you know, I thought maybe you'd want to do it. So, you know, he said, yeah, let's hear it. And when I got done and I told him the whole story, he was, yeah, let's, let's do it. The story is the story of uh, the Austrian Empire turn of the, near the turn of the 20th century. Emperor Franz Joseph has a son, Prince Rudolf who is the cousin to Kaiser Wilhelm of Germany. Right. And Prince Rudolf is not like Kaiser Wilhelm. He's not like his dad, the emperor of the you know, Austro-Hungarian Empire. He's, you know, he, he likes the good life. Right. Uh, <laughs> he's, a, he's a bon vivant, you know, he's a player. And, hunting and fishing and drinking and women. And then he meets a 17 year old woman and falls in love. And it's this flame, just this impossible flame of desire. And he basically starts to refused to do a lot of his uh, aristocratic duties. He's not around. He is against the warmongering that's beginning across Europe. He's just not a team player. And he wants to spend all of his time with this young woman. And she's not, she's his mistress. Uh -huh. And it's 
a very dicey thing and they have to meet on the sly and all this other stuff. And the story goes, and I'm getting all of this from a book that I read that is about this period of time in Vienna, in Austria, when a lot of amazing people were all in Austria at the same time. And the backdrop to all of this is this uh, story about Prince Rudolf and uh, Marie, uh, his, his girlfriend. And it's the story of uh, like Gustav Klimt, uh, the, uh, the painter is working in Vienna at that time. I think Mal, it might be Mahler uh, is, is composing in the city at the same time. So it's this, it's this great book. Right. And I'm reading the story, and as I'm reading the story, I'm thinking to myself, "Oh man, this is this is very cool. What's you know, how is this going to wind up?" Well, the way it winds up is that the couple starts to be found out, and they form a dual suicide pact because they can't bear the idea of being apart, right. and they can't get married, and through all of their romance, they've been taken around by Rudolph's chauffeur, who's actually driving like a sled with horses. And when he takes them for these rides to Rudolph's hunting lodge, which is where they get together, as he's driving them, he's singing folk songs to them, Austrian folk songs. And they're drinking wine in the back, covered in blankets, and, you know, eating snacks on the way to the hunting lodge. So then they get, on the last night, they get to the hunting lodge, and Rudolph shoots her and then commits suicide. And this is a huge scandal, you know, that rocked Europe for, you know, a couple of weeks, a couple of months, I don't know. But it really came off to me as, oh, man, this is like a teen, this is like a teen suicide where the guy falls in love with the girl, but his parents don't, the parents think that she's beneath him. And, you know, the dad's this big shot and he's got this cousin who's an ass. And and I just, it all came together for me really quick. And I came up with the music, too. The music for this song is nothing like the music that Brian... It it almost sounds like Countrypolitan or something. (laughs) And I wasn't there when they recorded it, right? (laughs) So when they record it, and, and then I get, you know, and Brian says, hey, you know, we got the we got the rough mix back. Uh, you know, do you want to hear the song? I said, Yeah, yeah, let's hear it. So you know, we're all in the booth, and Brian puts it on, and and I'm listening to it, and it's like, and I, you know, what the fuck? <laughs> it's like what? You know, don't you like it? And it's like, well, I, you know, it's not that it's bad, and I really like the ending. I don't know. I mean. You, you turned it. You kind of turned it into something goofy. It's not supposed to be goofy. Mm-hmm. It's supposed to be like a rock and roll romance, teen romance suicide song. Right. 
And, and he was like, oh, you know. And the end of the song is very cool. I think there's like a harmon, I mean, an accordion at the end, right? Yeah. It slows down and becomes a waltz, which I had never imagined. And it's beautiful. Yeah. And so, you know, because it wasn't my project, because Brian and I were so close and, and so tight, because I was so happy to be doing stuff with him, I kind of just let it go. Well, it's and, I, I like it on there because it, it it's a nice contrast you know, to the other stuff. Really, a lot of people, yeah. you're, you know, gratefully, really a lot of people like it. Yeah. You know, so thank you. Yeah. But uh, I made a real point of, you know, Brian, I don't know if Brian mentioned it all, that he and I and Sig Snowpeck, the Femmes keyboard player, and a lot of other Milwaukee musicians uh, uh, put together this band to just absolutely fuck around in every possible way. You you, uh, you have to be talking about Le Noisemakers from Hell. Le Noisemakers <laughs> from Hell, which trans, which then morphed into Washed Up Hasbins of Rock, mm. which always got just shortened to the Hasbins. Yeah. Every Sunday night, when we were, whenever we were on hiatus. Every Sunday night, we held court, and we're the only band in this club. And we would we would pack it, just absolutely pack it, standing room only. Yeah. And on a three-hour continuous show from nine to midnight with no breaks, of covers and noise and Sig, who you know was writing symphonies when he was a teenager, seriously. Sig could sight read anything. So he had fake books and he had every kind of mu book of weird music and, and popular music and Beatles and Stone. I mean, and was just always, you know, opening the spinning pages, opening up the book. He'd start to play and we'd all jump in. And it would be people like Cheap Trick. Mm -hmm. So Cheap Trick would do a gig downtown. And when they got done, they'd come and sit in with us. And that's where they heard my song, the song that I wrote called Blow Me. And they started playing that in their encores of their live show. <laughs> and then management, their management called me and asked me if I would sell them, uh, uh, if, if I would do a deal with them so they could put it on their next album. And I said, yeah, of course. And the record company refused uh -huh. because the whole song is just, the whole song was just, you know, B-L-O-W-M-E, blow me, B-L-O-W, and then, you know, blow me, blow me, blow me, well, imagine what Cheap Trick would do with a song like that. You know, they just turned it into this power pop nightmare and it was hilarious yeah. and like enough to want to put it on their album and it wound up getting talked about and written up in the milwaukee journal and my mom read it you know and my mom said oh this is you know this they're playing your song and, and i said yeah yeah she said, oh are you gonna get any money for that i said no i don't think so and she said, oh, what kind of song is it oh mom you know it, it, it's nothing i i couldn't tell her you know i couldn't tell her <laughs> And and with 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 uh, uh, let's drink some wine in Meyerling, 
you know, at the end, I thought the waltz was really great. And so, like you say, I mean, it, it, people liked it. And, and But in that washed up has-beens of rock thing, every Sunday night, and, you know, Brian and Victor were in that band for a long time. So that was like four guys from the Femmes in the early days were the main part of that band. And that was a big part of the draw. And Pat McCurdy, was another like solo performer, a guy with a solo act who played in Milwaukee and I think still has some kind of an act going. And, and you know, he and Sig are both in their seventies now. Uh, but Pat was this force of nature who, who could play, had an encyclopedic knowledge of rock and roll and pop music. And you could yell any song to Pat and he would, without any hesitation of any kind, start to play it on guitar like a wizard and sing perfectly and know all the lyrics. And it was almost impossible to stump him. And you could, and I'm, I'm talking about like sixties, seventies, eighties. It didn't matter if you yelled it out, Pat would start playing wow. a version. <laughs> Pat, I got together with Pat after I heard Brian's version. And I said, Pat, I don't want my version to die. Would you sit with me and figure out how to play the song and write down the guitar and the bass part so that, you know, I'd have this to be able to do someday. And Pat said, yeah, sure. So we got together and he did. And then we started doing it every Sunday night. So Brian had to listen to my version Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. My version is something like, you know, the guitar starts out and it's uh, it's all like heavy, heavy chords and it's all... And then, you know, I come in with... Uh, uh, I don't dig this scene. I just dig Marie. You know, da 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 da. da. Do you know what I mean? I got the big, because I'm a big shot now. I'm a handsome prince. Can I have this dance before I shoot us down? And then let's drink some wine before we die. You know, and it was a rocking, rocking oh, song. I bet. I bet. <laughs> wild solo. And so I I got mine, you know. <laughs> I got to play it. And, and yeah, my, my singing now is just terrible. And that's, you know, it doesn't sound anything like it did, you know, uh, I don't know, what, 30 years ago. But I'll do you one better on the Les Noisemakers. Uh, when we talked to John Cruth, he told me, when, yeah. he, when he came to Milwaukee, he said love, he loved the Femmes, but when he saw Les Noisemakers from Hell, it was a revelation, and he said, I, that's when I knew I was moving to Milwaukee. <laughs> it was incredible, and there, was, there were people from metal bands that came to sit in with us. There were people from, you know, uh, uh, one of the very first bands, first indie bands to get corporate backing was the Bodines from Milwaukee. They got Miller. Uh, they were a Miller band. And Miller sponsored them and threw money at them. And 
Sammy Giannis and, uh, and his partner would come and sit in with us. And we would do like six Everly Brothers songs in a row. And they would sing Everly Brothers perfectly. Guys like the Seeger Brothers from the band Semi-Twain, uh, who were signed, they would sit in with that band. They did for years. They played bass and guitar in that band for years. And, you know, we were always rotating people. And some nights we'd have two drummers because D Sig, would, Sig would go into a bar. He'd meet one drummer one night. And he'd say, yeah, you should put in with a Sunday night. Two nights later, he'd be in another bar and had completely forgotten who he would, had talked to. And so two guys would show up. Right. And you know, Sig would say stuff like, well, you know, you guys fight it out amongst yourselves. And <laughs> we were actually like, we were actually making money at this because the bar was making so much money on a Sunday night <laughs> that they were happy to throw like, I don't know, it was like two or three hundred dollars. Wow. Besides drinking for free, and this band was this was one of the most drunken, out of control, you know, substance abuse adventures of all time. I, I can't, I really can't go into it because there were so many people involved that I don't think would appreciate it. But we had, we had what we called the show before the show. And I think that John Kruth was in on some of this where we would show up and all be downstairs in the basement hanging out fueling up but we would be singing and and playing and there would be an actual like show before the show and people found out about that and we would have like 10 12 friends downstairs every sunday night before we all walked upstairs out of the basement to walk on stage and that was called the show before the show. And there was all kinds of great stuff. I would, I, my, my girlfriend, who's my wife now, lived here in Iowa City, and I was still living in Milwaukee. And I would drive back and forth on the weekends to hang out with her. But I would have to drive back in time to do the show on Sunday night. And on that drive of like three and a half or four hours from Iowa City to Milwaukee, I would write what I was just calling operas and what it was was just me thinking of songs for pat to play in the order that i was imagining would be fun and so it would be things like this magic moment do you know that old yeah, tune yeah yeah i know it so it would be stuff like this magic moment and the Oscar Mayer baloney song. <laughs> oh, what's that old rock song? Uh, when I lost my baby, I almost lost my mind. <laughs> and I would have this little list, but I wouldn't show it to him. And I'd have it on stage. And, you know, we're all sitting on stage. Everybody's got martinis. I would order a pitcher of rum and Coke and they'd pour like three, three quarters of a fifth into it. And I'd be drinking rum and Coke out of a pitcher and I'd be drinking that. And then Sig would say, let's do some Irish songs. And, you know, we had the books for guys like 
The Clancy brothers and Tommy Makeham and the Chieftains were playing Chieftains songs. We've got guys there playing Irish drum and penny whistle. I mean, and that's what John saw. You know, John, like, had become friends with the Femmes and had seen the Femmes. But when he saw the has-beens, and our, he's, he's seen these three-hour shows. And, you know, Brian, that was a chance for Brian, too, to really shine and to call a lot of shots and to be able to play a lot of songs that he absolutely wasn't going to get to do in the Femmes. Right. But, you know, he could do there. So these insane versions of, like, Helter Skelter, where Brian's taking the Brian's doing the solo on, you know, on bass, he's right. soloing on bass. Instead of, and then, you know, Pat would take like a solo too, but it was a chance for all of us to stretch out and just be out of our minds. And, you know, by that last hour, uh, we would like uh, people strip down to their underwear. Uh, I was always wearing masks and weird big hats and, and big gloves and Victor and I were kind of in charge of the theater. And so there was insane theater and performance art going on the whole time. And, you know, I would get so drunk that uh, I'd, I'd, I'd leave the stool that I was sitting on, but not be able to walk to the bathroom that was like 30 feet away from the stage. And I would have to crawl on my hands and knees to the bathroom. And, you know, as soon as I would get, I'd say, you know, everybody, <laughs> I just gotta, I'm just gotta, you know, take a little breather. I'll be right back. And, and then, you know, I would drop the mic and then I'd fall on the floor and I'd start crawling on my hands and knees to the bathroom. Well, the crowd would go wild, you know, and it's like, 150 people in the room and they're all applauding and screaming and whistling. I'd get into the bathroom and I'd crawl into a stall and, you know, I'd be sick as hell. And somebody in the bathroom would like help me get up and carry me over to the sink. And, you know, I'd be splashing water on my face and, and washing out my mouth. And, you know, everybody's like, you okay, Pete, you okay? Are you doing okay? And, and I, yeah, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right. Just help me get back down on the floor. <laughs> get back down on the floor and they'd open the door to the bathroom and I'd come out and I'd start crawling back on my hands and knees to the stage. <laughs> Same outrageous like reaction. And I'd crawl back up on stage and they'd help me sit down again. And there'd be a fresh martini waiting for me. <laughs> And I'd lift up that martini and, you know, hold it up and, and everybody. And there are, luckily, there are hundreds of pictures. There are hundreds of photographs of the of this gig with, like, famous, you know, famous people sitting in and me in, in all these different costumes and doing the kind of stuff that I've been talking about and, it, it was, you know, it was a place to try out a lot of stuff, and and a lot of that stuff was either stuff that wound up on people's solo albums or came from their solo albums, and we had a completely different kind of audience to listen to it. And it sounds yeah. like uh, you really found your found your 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 people, and it sounds like a really special time. It, it was, it, it was, and and you know, again, I. I think this is true of like really a lot of bands, but it was especially 
true of the femmes because Brian and Victor both were not content. And neither was Gordon. I mean, that's what was behind Mercy Seat. And then right. later after the femmes split up the second time, you know, and, and he started playing with different people in New York, they all had ideas yeah. that somehow just didn't fit the films yeah. and, and wouldn't have worked with Femmes fans. And they were they all felt constrained by that. Brian was the one who recorded the most. Brian was the one who played the most. Brian was the one who toured the most and actually toured like outside the country and and I think that was just because he had a real intense, like Gordon, he had a real intense personal vision of what he wanted to do and what kind of music he wanted to bring. And I think he was always a little disappointed, you know, that Femmes fans didn't like his solo albums more. Yeah. That they didn't understand and realize how much of the Femmes was all. They're connected him. for sure. Yeah, yeah. And you know, it took it took Gordon a long time, I think, to admit that, but I think he always knew it too, that yes, he had written the songs, but he hadn't arranged them. And you know, a lot of times Brian would say to Gordon, write another part to this song. You know, we've got like the basics here, but write another part, another whole part to this song. For some of the songs, like Kiss Off never tell those are my favorite songs are the femme songs that have like five different parts and and that's brian kind of you know pushing gordon sometimes to turn it into something more than just a simple verse and chorus song his arranging of things was so important to those songs yeah and that was always like one of those bones of contention. But what I always like to do in terms of sticking up for Gordon is to say that when Gordon said to them really early on, can I keep all the publishing rights? Victor and Brian were both like, oh yeah, sure, man. <laughs> He's a lot younger than they are. Yeah. They don't have sense that it's going anywhere. For sure. It's just something doing for fun. Yeah. They're not even having an easy time getting gigs right then suddenly they well not suddenly but they decide they want to record gordon's songs the songs that gordon wrote when he was 16 they borrow money from victor's father they record the first album they go on a two-week tour of the east coast they manage to play in new york and they suddenly get this press this un you know, yielding praise yeah. that just generates this buzz. And then they get, you know, they're signed to Slash and it takes off. I mean, we worked hard in those first few years. We worked really hard. So it's not like it all just happened overnight. Yeah. But I don't think that Victor and Brian truly had any sense at all that they were in anything other than another band from Milwaukee. Yeah. And, you know, Victor wanted to be an actor. Music was going to be 
his way into acting because he had been an actor. He was in the same experimental theater group with Willem Dafoe in Milwaukee, okay. Theater X. Yep. Because before Willem Dafoe was, I think, part of Steppenwolf, he was part of uh, uh, Theater X. So he knew Willem Dafoe. Dafoe would come to our gigs. Peter, it sounds like uh, we're barely even scratching the surface of all the amazing stories that you have. I, I'm hoping you'll come back on for part two when we get to the the EP for Sun Ra, Man from Outer Space. Will you Will you do that? Yeah, Brent, uh, 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 I've had really a lot of fun. It's great to meet you and, and to be able to uh, uh, talk to your audience. And I'd be really happy to come back and, and talk about uh, Sun Ra, the song, all of our adventures, uh, uh, listening to Sun Ra, playing with Sun Ra. Awesome. Yeah, Can't be, wait. Thanks so much. That'd be for, great. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me tonight. I really do Thank appreciate you. it. Thank you. Thanks for the fun and the, the trip down memory lane. <laughs> All right, man. I sure hope Peter comes back yeah. on the show. He, I, I feel like we're just, you know, this is just the tip of the iceberg for some cool spiels from Peter. So I was just loving it. And <laughs> now, why don't you just tell everyone what was my favorite spiel from Peter? <laughs> you tell him. I just loved hearing about Joe's drummer. Yeah. I can't help as it. As soon as he started talking about that, I was just like, oh man, Ryan's going to shit when he hears this. Well, you know what? I have read that same story from dozens of artists a dozen times right and the fans and everything and that's people remember that about joe almost as much as they remember his music and i just love that yeah uh yeah i mean peter and i talked for probably another 45 minutes after i stopped recording and i just wanted to keep like interrupting him and going save it for the next episode <laughs> <laughs> or we could put it on the mojack box set yeah yeah we should, I should have recorded it and just like made it for our Patreon only subscribers Patreon. or something. <laughs> <laughs> and if you want to hear more with Peter Balistrieri, yeah, a donation of $5. Whenever someone starts saying that, I'm like, X, I'm out. I'm out, baby. I'm out. But it's Ryan, okay. they could listen to this episode ad free. I guess so, hey? Yeah. yeah. Well, you're going to have to listen to my ads every time you tune in. Yeah. You know what my favorite thing is? that happens when we interview people is when they just name bands. Yeah. <laughs> like, and I can start a list. I I'm super interested in their, like their interest in Arabic music and like tuning into radio Cairo. Yeah. I know about tuning into radio Cairo. I of course have never done it. And I knew unlike Kim Thale last week, I knew none of the musicians that Peter name dropped. Yeah. Well, one he mentioned, I asked him about again, cause I, I couldn't make it out what he said, and I I couldn't find who he was talking about, and I'm probably going to screw this up, uh, but it's spelt, you know, I'll, I won't even say it, I'll let him say it, but it's spelt J-I-L-J-I-L-A-L-A. He told me they weren't really psychedelic, they were part of the folk movement that happened in Morocco in the 70s. I lived I lived in Morocco in 74, and that's how I heard about them. We heard them first on the radio, on a bus, and the kids listening told us they were hippies that smoked hash. They actually came out of the Sufi and Guana traditions. Mm. The Egyptian singer we liked, and still do, again, I will defer to Peter's pronunciation in the interview, Wam Kaltum, 
Uh, her records and videos, mostly all live, are amazing, long performances of simple poetry with each pass through improvised and backed by a huge modern and traditional orchestra. Uh, he also mentioned this guy Carmig DeForest, who I've never checked out before. He, I think he describes him as like a ukulele punk rocker that opened for the Violet yeah. Femmes a lot. Yeah, right. You ever heard of him? No, no, no. I, like I said, there was some of the uh, Milwaukee combos that he mentioned. I have a slight, you know, r- recollection of hearing them before, but I don't. I didn't really know anything. There's just so I I wrote down a ton of names that mm-hmm. I have to check into. I and I will admit, like, I've never really dove that deeply into world music, much less Arabic. Like, yeah, that that's just not been something that. I've been drawn to, but, uh, his passion gets me interested in it. Yeah, for sure. Uh, he's talking about a pre garbage band with Mike Cashew that used to play with the Femmes. I think he probably means Swamp Thing Mm. who released two albums on Madison label Flaming Pie Records. The second of which 1987's A Cow Come True, Brian plays on. And from what I checked out, they would have been a perfect fit with the Femmes, uh, and, are also now added to my ridiculous list of bands to check out. <laughs> yeah, right. I like this quote. He he mentions this band name, Brian Ritchie and the International Quo Vardis Nomads, which he told me later he thinks that's maybe what they were billed on for this tour. Mm. Uh, he says, when you're playing with Brian Ritchie, you're playing with a corderie, you're playing with a gang. Yeah. Uh, one interesting thing he said is Marshall Allen in Sunra's band he saw him and he was using a sax like as a percussion instrument is how he described it. Yeah. And Peter, Peter naturally developed his own style. It made me think of Scott Colby developing his own unique style of playing slide where he frets behind the slide. And then years later, seeing Sonny Landreth do that and they could mm-hmm. had kind of developed that independently of each other. How awesome do Les Noisemakers from Hell sound? Or the Whoa. washed up has-beens of rock? <laughs> Whoa, it sounds like it sounds like a few hundred people had the time of their life regularly watching those guys, hey? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Wow. <laughs> it just makes me want to read these uh, Milwaukee books that I have, uh, that I haven't cracked open yet. I wonder if they make an appearance. I hope so. Yeah. Well, now after talking to Brian Ritchie, Peter and John Cruth, I feel like we have a pretty good picture of this scene and, you know, just this, like he says, this coterie or this gang of people that were just playing on each other's albums and... It sounds like New York. Yeah. it's But it's in Milwaukee. It just blows my mind. Yeah. So cool. Yeah. Let's talk about these tracks, Ryan. History Lesson, Part 2. Okay, so the first track on side one... It's called Bells. Sounds like maybe the Tibetan Bells and Bowl, credit to Abdul Hamid Alawan on the record. Yep. You can kind of almost hear like whatever it is, a stone or something swirling around in the bowl. Mm-hmm. Some flute, probably played by John Cruth, I'm guessing. It's just a minute long and it kind of sets your ex- expectations for the album. Like, Oh yeah. Like, okay, this is going to be interesting. It's just got that a real mystic feel. Yeah. It definitely has that kind of ohm type of flavor for me. Yep. Track two is the title track, Sonic Temple and Court of Babylon. 
We don't ask you to be our friend, just request that you attend. Sit with us, here, open your ears, there is a story to hear. With the, you know, the acoustic instruments, the tabla or congos, I'm not sure which. Uh, it all just really works great with the lyrics, you know? Yeah, yeah, it's a great world music vibe. And this is really, you know, Brian Ritchie on that acoustic bass comes right through and it hooks me in right off the bat on this album. Yeah. It's psychedelic too, which, you know, Peter talks about was a big aspect in a lot of the stuff they were hearing on Radio Cairo. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The lyric, I just love the lyrics. Guillotine heads sewn to bodies of dogs, crystals, stones, and drug drums carved from logs. Coats <laughs> made from wings of butterflies soaked in perfumes that will make you cry. Yeah. The solo section on this is just wild. Like, I wish I knew more about these instruments to know, you know, to pick them out. Like, it's pr probably a conch or maybe a kalimba. Like, someone is just going off on some sort of wind <laughs> instrument. Like, you can hear them breathing into it, you know? Yeah. Well, you can't really shred on a, cr on a conch. <laughs> <laughs> so, I'm not... Th those are more... Uh, well, I don't know. I'm talking like I'm a conch authority. I'm not. I'm not. I'm just I'm just guessing based on what I know. But you don't really shred a conch. But hey, maybe someone can. Yeah. Right off the bat, this record comes across as, I think, maybe more realized than the blend. Mm -hmm. Like on that one, he just flirted with these types of sounds. Yeah. This one, he's a, it's a full tilt like a Peterbilt. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, track three. Why did you lie to me? Things get pretty rocking on this one. This is a 12-bar blues, basically. Dig that cool solo section that's just discordant and sounds like it's falling apart. Uh, the section that opens and closes this track sounds like a sounds like a space cartoon. Yeah, for me, this track, kind of, it's not like a copycat thing, but it reminded me of Devo, this mm, track. Yeah, I can see that. Devo, you know, if Devo devo-fied this. They would, if, if Devo devolved it. There you go. That's the yeah. word I was looking for. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I don't see a credit for keys or synth, but it's not an acoustic instrument that's making those sounds for sure. Mm -hmm. The rapid fire lyrics are amazing and hilarious because it's super fast, eh? Pompous yeah. grinning pimple with a chest of bars and stars, shit face TV smile selling guns like they're used cars. Uh, dropping babies' diapers on three continents. Like, that's why what I mean, like, right out of the gate. Even, like, the track, Why Did You Lie to Me? It's very political. All of this is, like, to me, this much of this record is a critique on America. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Uh, the next one, Sun Ra. From Out of Space. Yeah. Serious bongo action on this. And then it's like, a 1950s rockabilly review in this in this song, right? Yeah. Like, w with bongos, it's wild. Yeah, Peter gets a co-write on this one. I, I suspect Peter wrote more of these lyrics than he gets credit for in the LP, but I don't know that. I seem, I seem to recall uh, John Cruth saying, you know, that Peter was uh, wrote many of the lyrics mm -hmm. uh, on the two records. Uh, super catchy song, great lyrics, uh, Probably Chris Loss on the congas or marimba. 
came from Saturn long time ago to give Earth creatures what he knows. Jazz from Jupiter, jazz from Mars, jazz from out beyond the stars. The ending of this, when they're playing out on just that repeated chorus and everyone's throwing out licks, like John will just peel off a cool mandolin lick or Peter will, you know, Peter will just do a quick scronk. <laughs> That's good. Yeah. Track five, America. Uh, like you said, you know, lyrically, they start us off young in this country, sending us to public schools, hurting us around like cattle, lobotomizing us with rules. Mm-hmm. If, if you still got your mind left, they teach you how to read. Talks about South African dictatorships, Nicaragua, big business, you know, building war machines, the press yep. suppressing the truth. Mm-hmm. Brian almost raps the lyrics. It's great. The chorus with the sax, you know, kind of doing the call and response thing with the vocals. I bet this song went down a storm live. Yeah. <laughs> And it's got some serious cowbell and shredding guitar. Mm-hmm. Uh, the next one, Christian for One Day. Ooh, ouch. Yeah. Have you ever seen a statue, it's cock and balls cut off? <laughs> That's the first lyric in the song. Whoa. Yeah. And I should say, uh, this song and Sun Roth, Man from Outer Space, we're going to hear again on episode 227 on an EP. Th- this is just a short two-minute acoustic number, uh, you know, with the crimes man has committed in the name of the Christian religion kind of on display. But we're all nice on Christmas day. Yeah. I remember John Cruth telling us that, uh, Per Ubu cooked, speaking of Per Ubu, booted them off tour because David Thomas is a Jehovah's witness and wasn't down with some of these lyrics. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Have you ever seen Per Ubu live? No, never. You have? Yeah. Yeah. I saw them in Toronto. Okay. Uh, flipping it over, we've got an instrumental called AD. Again, I wish I knew more about some of these in- instruments so I could pick pick them out. Definitely, I hear a Jew's harp, maybe a melodica. I'm not even sure what that is. Baritone sax, probably doing that. You know, kind I of... wondered if that detuning sound was the zither, maybe. Maybe, yeah. I think there's a clarinet on this for sure. This sounds like something you'd see in a movie when somebody is like up to some mischief. Yeah, it's like a marching, mischievous whistling type of track, I yeah. guess. <laughs> it's cool, though. Okay, the highlight for me, uh, especially after hearing the story that Peter tells, is the next song. And hearing him sing it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Come on. Uh, Meyerling, Let's Drink Some Wine. Uh, written, of course, by Brian and Peter. I don't dig this scene. I just dig Marie. Absolutely loved this song the first time I heard it, which was truthfully preparing for this episode. I've never heard this record before. Me either. Yeah. Me either. Uh, loved it as soon as I heard it, and then as soon as Peter told that told that story, I I loved it even more of the Meyerling incident. Uh, yeah. It's wild though. Like it's another nineteen fifties rock sounding track, but with mandolin. And then it ends with a like an accordion and mandolin minstrel piece in a waltz. Yeah. What a what a wild track. Well, that accordion waltz at the end, that's Rudolph and Marie dancing before the murder suicide. <laughs> yeah, <You> know? I know. <laughs> I really hate my dad. I hate his stupid throne. 
<laughs> Almost a 60s surfy vibe. Brian is doing this total Wilco Johnson thing on guitar. You know, the, the kind of stabbing at it like Wilco Johnson does. I can guarantee you the dance floor just exploded every time they broke this one out. Yeah. Uh, track three, No Resistant, A Christian, written by Brian. This one's just a mandolin-fueled rave-up. I mean, when you've got John Carruth in your band, you'd be a fool not to do something like this. I mean, the dude has an album called Banshee Mandolin. Yeah, it is a bluegrass crucifixion of 1980s evangelical religion. Yeah, yeah, it mentions all the scandalous televangelists of the day like Jimmy Swaggart. This sounds like something Mojo Nixon might come up with. Ah, and the Toad Lickers. You bet. What was the name of his record with Jello? Prairie, oh gosh. Prairie Home Invasion. That's what it was. Uh, track four, So It Goes. Another acoustic rocker. Lyrically, it's about, you know, two soldiers and how they have more in common than they realize and how they're really just pawns for their respective leaders. It's a real rocker. You know, this could this one could have worked as a Femme song. Almost. I have the exact same thing written down. I said it sounds like the Femmes. Yeah. The next track I just loved, Hassani Saba. This, this is built around this really you know, slinky Egyptian influenced bass groove. Mm-hmm. Hassan Isaba, his full name is Hassan bin Ali bin Muhammad bin al Husayn bin Muhammad bin al Saba al Hamari. Known in the West as the Old Man of the Mountain, he was the founder of the military group known as the Order of Assassins. They were a mysterious sect of Shia Islam who lived in the mountains of Persia and in Syria between. Uh, 1090 and 1275. They basically covertly assassinated Muslim and Christian leaders throughout the Middle East. Mm. The the lyrics suggest, uh, as is mentioned in the press kit, he kept his marauding armies loyal through a steady supply of women and hashish. And a, a cool aside, Hawkwind have a have a really good song with a similar Eastern feel on their 1977 album, Quark, Strangeness, and Charm. Where they, hmm. where they chant hashish. <laughs> Brian's solo in this one is especially good. In case you forgot, he could, uh, you know, melt frets like a motherfucker. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> uh, the next one, Reach Out, starts with some bluesy slide, then goes into a total gospel-infused sn- uh, showstopper. John Cruth on harmonica, Brian tearing shit up on some nice, crunchy bass. Not sure who's playing slide. I, I'm guessing probably Brian, but maybe John. Whoever it is, they're just killing it. It's good. Yeah, it's a slide guitar blues number. Don't forget some uh, honking on the bobo. Yeah. That's it, man. Good record. I yeah. like it better than the blend. Yeah. Yeah, I loved it, man. I mean, the blend was good. This is great. And the follow-up, I See a Noise on Dolly Records, 1990. It's also really great. Abdullah Mead's on it, uh, Sigmund Snowpeck III, who's on The Blend and played on a bunch of Femmes records, Peter's all over it, he wrote half the songs on it, Mike Cashew, and a bunch more. Uh, It's more rockin' than this one, uh, but it's good, if anybody wants some more of this stuff. There's still no one else that plays like an acoustic bass in a band like this. Yeah, no, I agree. 
let's talk about this uh, brilliant cover art, Ryan. So Peter told me it's made from a photo yep. originally. He says a collage maybe. I, I thought possibly a photo that's been painted on. It's been doctored for yeah. sure. I don't know how. And you can not just even painted. It looks as though there's some sort of like almost like they they did like a uh, I don't know. I don't know what you would call it, like a microfiche kind of type of plastic over top and drew on top of that and overlaid it. I don't know. Yeah. So he told me uh, the creator credit here is four T A is Jerry Fortier. Uh, a musician and band leader of a group called Transcendance and owner of a vintage clothing store, I assume, in Milwaukee. Mm-hmm. Now, Ryan, can you guess who these people are? Because I know I got Peter to tell me. I can guess maybe three. I'm going to say maybe more, actually. Hang on. Let's see here. I'm going to say it's Brian in the middle with the bass. And the fez. He's wearing the a fe- fez. And the fez, yeah. And like the massive necklaces of what looks like medallions or shells or something. Like they uh, look like the music that they yes. play. Oh yeah. yeah. They look like they just arrived from Morocco. Peter with the sax. Yep. I'm going to say it's Kruth with the mandolin. Look at that thing, man. Look at that mandolin. <laughs> it's a very, uh, it's like a medieval but, looking one. For but sure, he's wearing right? beetle boots or something. He's got Cuban heels on, man. Look at those boots. Like, <laughs> These dudes knew how to dress, man. Like, and imagine if you went to a see this band and this this came out on stage. Yeah. Now I can't. I'm not sure who is, you know, Chris versus Abdulhamid, but I'm thinking that Chris is the guy with the green toque, and Abdulhamid is the one with the sick goatee going on. Ring a ding ding. And, you got them all? Who's yeah, the kid? Who's the kid? That's Brian's son, Silas. Ah, nice. So another interesting thing is this album is dedicated to Brian Jason, uh, a writer and painter best known for showing William Burroughs the cut-up technique he ended up using to write books like Naked Lunch. It's dedicated to Brian Jones, founder, of course, of the Rolling Stones, who also became very interested in Moroccan music in the years before his death, even producing an album by the master musicians of Jojuku. Brian McLean, uh, who was the guitarist in the LA band Love and wrote some of their most famous songs, including, including Old Man, Orange Skies, and Alone Again, or... And Brian Wilson, of course, the genius behind the Beach, Boy, Beach Boys and one of the greatest songwriters of all time. Mm. So interesting that he chose to thank these four Brians. I wonder if he just wanted to thank four Brians or if it's... Just coincidence that these are actually four of his main influences or something, and they just all happen to be named Brian. I feel like it's intentional that he targeted some Brians. That's yeah. that's what it seems like to me. Nice that he thanked uh, Cynthia Bartel, though, as well again. Yep. Do we have any dead wax, Ryan? Not on mine, but there's some, uh, some more cool artwork on the back, too. More religious imagery with uh, their instruments overlaid over top. Um, that, you know, just continues on with the motif of this album. I love the, uh, like the top right hand. I don't, I don't know who these figures are, but it looks like it's Jesus and Mary with the mandolin instead of the baby Jesus. (laughs) I could be wrong. The bottom left hand, I thought you would like that because you know what those little flames are on top of everyone's head, right? What? 
in the guitar picture there. What? Well, I think they're getting touched by the Holy Spirit. Okay. To do some serious shredding. Mm-hmm. Pretty sure. Pretty sure. Nice. And then uh, it also looks like in the middle panel on the left, you've got Mary. Like it looks, it's like Jesus. The cru- it's the crucifixion, but then like in the foreground <laughs> is is the bass guitar. It's pretty sacrilegious. This I was going to say it's very sacrilegious. It's blasphemous, but all of this artwork on here totally suits the music on the oh, record. Oh yeah, it's a it's it's a really tight package. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. Very cool. And, I mean, it was recorded at the Perversion Room. Even better. Yeah. Yeah, I seem to recall Brian telling us that that was like David Vartanian's basement or something. (laughs) (laughs) Naughty stuff happened in there. Oh, I love the name. Yeah. Ballot result? Yeah, man. Ballot result. So, there's great stuff on here, but... I, I want to drink some wine for my ballot result on this one. But what do you got? Uh, my favorites were Sonic Temple. Mm-hmm. Why did you lie to me? Sun Ra, which we'll get another crack at. Uh, America. Hassani Saba. Reach out. But yeah, it's got to be, let's drink some wine <laughs> before we die. Oh, man. You should do the acapella version with Peter when he's on again. What an earworm, man. Oh, for sure. It's it's the only Brian Ritchie song we've covered on the show. This is the fourth release. That's the only song that I was like singing around the house. <laughs> yeah, I love this record, man. I, I had to get I See a Noise. I think I flubbed the title of it in the interview, but it's called I See a Noise on Dolly Records from 1990. And I think that that's it for like this style of music that Brian was doing. He does, Brian, have, yeah. he does have more solo albums under his own name, but it seemed to go like full on just, you know, all instrumental, you know, shakuhachi and stuff like that, which is cool. Well, no, no. He's got that surf band with the guys from uh, Midnight Oil. Don't forget. Yeah, that's not true, too. He does have another, uh, he, he's got some other stuff. He plays with a band called Zen Circus. He's got this Green Mind band. I just mean like th- under, you know, him as band leader, kind of, you know, like the blend in this album. And yeah, and yeah. I see a noise. I, I know, I know what you mean. Don't get me wrong. And I was I'm just like, rocking the fems all week too, man. Oh yeah, yeah. So hey, I was, uh, you know, looking looking into this record as were you, um, but I came across a podcast this week. Brian was on it. It's the podcast called Kyle Meredith with. Hmm. It looks like it's put out on this website Consequence. Oh yeah, and yeah. and and it was a podcast with Brian coinciding with the 30th anniversary of the Violent Femmes album 3. So if you were rocking the Femmes this week and you dig that album 3, which it sounds like kind of flew under the radar for the Femmes. It's not a very well-known one based on what they were talking about on the podcast. That's a great interview with Brian and this guy Kyle Meredith really digging into this album three. They talk about Peter and and the horn section. Um, They also talk about this album, the Sonic Temple album on there. I mean, and Brian was calling it like folk music as protest songs. So that's Mm -hmm. another reason why that comment in Michael Whitaker's uh, write-up kind of caught my attention. I'm like, I don't know, man. These are, if these aren't protest songs, what, what is, you know? 
Yeah. Oh, I'm going to check that out, man. I'm pretty sure that's a consequence of sound podcast. And I think I've listened to it before, but. Oh, that, that episode? That podcast. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's, okay. It's associated with consequence of sound. Yeah. Okay. Well, if you've listened to that episode. No, no, not that episode. I just mean that guy's podcast. Oh, okay. Yeah. I was going to withdraw the recommend. Yeah. No, it's uh, that recommend is still on the table. Maintained. Got yeah. it. Woo. Hey, Ryan, thanks to Peter. I just love chatting with him. Such a friendly guy. Yeah. Like. Talented. He, he's got, yeah, oh yeah, for sure. He's got lots of stories left to tell for sure. Can't wait. Yeah. Episode when, 227, man. Well, when we get into the 300s, we could just have him on like every other week. Like for the blank episodes? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or for the episodes that it's like, you know. It's just a Greg Ginn solo album and we'll never get anyone else on. Let's have Peter on. Why not? Why not? Yeah. Yeah. All right, Ryan, what's next week? Next week, Brent, it's a first timer. It's SST 203, the Roger Manning solo album. And we've got a special guest. Yeah, man. Roger Manning's on the show. Ah, so cool. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Tumblr, all at Mojack Pod. We post all kinds of info and tons of pictures of the bands and albums we discuss on the show. Our blog is mojackpod.com. Please check it out for some exclusive content. If you like what we do and want to support the podcast, the best way to do that is to tell your friends about the show. Subscribing, rating, and reviewing on iTunes is also appreciated. We love hearing your opinions, corrections, and feedback, so feel free to post on our social media sites and send us an email to mojackpod at gmail.com. Thanks again for all the support, and we hope to see you next week.